0: This is France. Voted the most elegant country in the world, it still has a lot more to give than scenic Instagram shots. In many ways this European nation is a global trendsetter for other economies. This goes from the rollout of the metric system to more tangible short term indicators. If you want to predict the future, look to France. Now this is not to say that the country is any further ahead of any other developed nation In fact, in many ways, it's quite possibly the opposite. But the industries that they choose to engage in make them a great indicator for global economic performance. Even beyond being a 640,000 square kilometer thermometer, the country is still an amazing case study. In the same way that France is a great indicator of what is going on in the rest of the world, it's also a great showcase of structural issues that are impacting more and more developed countries. Thank you for watching Economics Explained. These videos are made possible by our patrons over on Patreon. If you enjoy these videos, please consider liking and subscribing. Now it's time to explore what it is that makes this country what it is today. The French Revolution and its impacts that are still being felt 220 years later, the country's biggest export industries, and the very fluid relationship the country has with employment. So let's get stuck in where it all started. The French Revolution was a period of social uprising in France between the years of 1789 and 1799. The ins and outs of this event are so extensive that it has been literally turned into university courses, but what is important to know, at least for the sake of understanding France's economy, is that it ultimately amounted to the people of the country demanding a say in the way that their country was run. The period prior to the revolution was wrought by famines and extreme inequality between the nobility and the commoners. Eventually the common people who made up a vast majority of the nation said screw this and then rioted for 10 years, made some demands, de-religionified, beheaded some nobles to send a message, introduced some metric and elected a new government to put an end to all of this misery business. Now the message the beheading sent was to keep a stronger control over your populace, the metric system was only half adopted, I mean we still don't have 10 hour days, Religion came back pretty swiftly and the government that maintained power after the revolution was potentially more authoritarian than the one that it replaced. And poor people were still poor. So as far as the revolution goes, it isn't what you would call a great success if not for this point here, the rights of the French people. The Declaration of Rights of Man is the French equivalent of the Bill of Rights in America. The only difference is that the French are even more serious about these rights than Americans are. The Bill of Rights was in a sense a bit of an afterthought tacked onto the constitution, whereas the declaration of rights of man was the foundation of the revolution. It's what people were fighting for. Now the French Revolution is fascinating, but before this devolves into a history lesson which would be far better delivered by a historian rather than an economist, you need to know the takeaways. France in the modern day is a country built around the desires of the people. Fighting for better standards of living is as ingrained into the public psyche as Americans with apple pie, Australians with cheap wine, and Canadians with apologizing. The role of any economy is to satisfy unlimited demands with limited resources. The people of France demand a lot, and in turn it's ultimately up to the economy to deliver on those demands, so it has a lot of heavy lifting to do. Fortunately, it does have a few things going for it. France has a current account deficit. The current account is part of the balance of payments which is ultimately a breakdown of how a country interacts with the world. This sounds very tricky, but it's not nearly as complex as most people make it out to be. If we focus on the current account, which is one side of the balance of payments, We find most of it is made up of imports and exports. If you import more than you export, you are going to be sending more money overseas than what you bring in. Now eventually this is going to mean that this excess money is going to have to come from somewhere, and that is going to be in the financial account. The financial account basically tracks the money that is given to another country as investment. If for example a Chinese company delivers 10,000 laptops to an American retailer for 10 million dollars, That would put a 10 million dollar deficit on the American current account balance. Now let's say America sold 5 million dollars worth of aluminium to China, this would be an increase to the current account of 5 million dollars. Now let's assume no other trades are made for the rest of the year. Ultimately America is still in a net deficit of 5 million dollars. Which means something else has to happen on the other side. Either America has to take out a loan to pay back this $5 million financial shortfall, or someone from some other country, doesn't even need to be China, has invested $5 million back into America. This could be done by buying American shares or real estate, investing into farmland, or even by writing a $5 million loan. So long as it involves giving America money in return for some American asset, you have solved the problem. This investment transfer comes in on the other side of the equation here in the financial account. The sum of the financial account and the current account always have to equal zero and hence you have the balance of payments. This is really important to understand because it shows that if a country continues to import more than it exports it will either need to take on more and more foreign debt or more and more of the country will be owned by foreign interests, neither of which is a particularly desirable outcome. One of Emmanuel Macron's primary election promises was to bring the French economy back into a trade surplus. As of 2019, this goal had not been realized, with total exports of $804 billion compared to imports of $871 billion, giving them a trade deficit of $67 billion for the year. So this doesn't look great. But a really important thing to know about all of this is that trade deficits are actually not really as scary as people make them sound. Most developed countries in the world have trade deficits. The USA has a trade deficit 10 times larger than France's. The horror stories of a country slowly being bought up by foreign interests due to a balance of trade deficit is only true if this foreign investment outpaces growth, which it almost never does in any developed country around the world. Why this is so important to France is because it is one of the few countries that could, and potentially should, manage a current account surplus. The figure of French exports is broken down into two parts. The first part is the stuff that most people think of when they think of exports. Cars, machinery, wine, cheese, designer handbags, all stuff that you can load up onto a ship and send abroad. This accounts for about $563 billion of this figure. France has a huge natural advantage in this field because of the intrinsic value people put on French made items. From a Birkin to a fighter jet, if you slap a made in France label on something it demands a premium, which in turn means that the country can engage in hugely value adding industries. For $100 worth of leather, a French fashion house can charge thousands of dollars for a handbag. We saw the same thing when we explored the economy of Italy, and in a sense the natural resource wealth of both of these countries is not in oil or coal or iron ore, but rather in the wealth of their culture that people from across the world desperately try to emulate. The perceived quality of French goods over other goods is certainly a huge boost, but what might actually be more important to this whole import-export debate is the less tangible side of the equation. This total export figure is also made up of $241 billion worth of service exports. Oftentimes, this gets ignored because it is a lot harder to visualize packing up an accountant and sending them off in a container ship. But in reality, this is probably the more important part to consider. France's service exports primarily consist of business and IT services, transportation through the country's airlines, and perhaps most importantly, Tourism Tourism is not what most people think of when they think of exports. If anything it involves bringing people in from other countries instead of sending goods to other countries so it kind of sounds like it's all a bit backwards, although tourism is in fact an export industry. If a country exports oil then someone from some other country is paying them for that oil. If a country exports tourism then someone from some other country is paying them for an experience. In both cases it involves money flowing from one country to another and something being delivered in return. In many ways, tourism is the best export industry you can have. For starters, it is endlessly renewable. You are never going to diminish your supply of Instagram photos in front of the Eiffel Tower and people looking at the Mona Lisa doesn't use up the Mona Lisa. Beyond that, tourism is a great way to inject cash into the economy. When you think of typical exports that get loaded onto container ships, a majority of the proceeds from those sales will go to corporations with the ability to sell products internationally. From there, not a lot of this money will find its way down to the average citizen. Tourism on the other hand involves cashed up Americans paying way too much to a local souvenir shop or Japanese tourists paying 8 euros for a crepe along the Champs-Élysées or cash that is going directly to the pockets of regular individuals running a business that will be put back into the local economy. France has the largest tourism industry in the world, which means it is uniquely positioned to capitalize on what might be the ultimate export. Of course, 2020 won't be the year for that. This is part of the reason why France is such a great indicator of the world economy. Its industries are all heavily dependent on global prosperity. If there is some kind of global crisis, tourism stops really fast. Even if the world is only suffering through an economic crisis, luxuries like foreign travel and designer goods are the first thing to go, meaning that France will be the first developed country to feel the effects. This effectively means that France is great during the good times and terrible during the bad times. And that all has very real impacts on an individual level.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
0: Unemployment in France is high, sitting at around 9% as of 2019. This is a rate double that of the United States, at least up until recently. What makes this even more concerning is that France does not necessarily have any underlying systemic issues like Greece or Italy or its other European contemporaries. France also has a low participation rate, which means not as many people in France are actually looking for a job and those who are still can't find one. What makes this weirder is that French firms are actually struggling to hire workers. So to get this straight, France does not have many people choosing to work or look for a job, from those people that are looking not many can find work, Or while businesses can't find people to work for them. So what is going on here? Well it's actually relatively simple, French people have it very easy. A hangover from the heritage of a nation born out of revolution is the fact that people are really good at fighting for what they want. 40-hour work week? Nah, make it 35 hours. Minimum wage? Yeah, better make that pretty high. Workers' rights? Oh yeah, we're going to need lots and lots of those. Education? Eh, we'll do our best. What this means is that French workers, especially young workers, are often ill-equipped for the professional world. They are expensive to hire, hard to fire, and only work 35 hours a week. As a business, bringing someone on board as an employee is a huge decision because if you get a bad worker or a worker that does not have the skills necessary to perform their role they are almost impossible to get rid of. Beyond that, social welfare is very very strong in the nation, meaning that a lot of people don't care if they work or not because their lifestyle won't be materially impacted either way. Now hold up, I know what you are going to say. We have explored national economies like Sweden and Norway and found that despite relatively strong social welfare, they were incredibly prosperous. What is the difference here? Good question. The answer? No one really knows. Everybody from the international monetary fund to political commentators has an opinion on the matter, but it isn't really clear. One theory is that a nation like Sweden actually really encourages entrepreneurship for all of the reasons we saw in the video we did on Sweden. Whereas France will hold your social welfare hostage and beat you over the head with bureaucracy if you try and start a business, which means people just prefer to either stay employed or unemployed. Education is also a significant issue here. French businesses are desperate for skilled workers, but they have found that French universities are excellent for teaching philosophy and the arts, but not so great for teaching practical skills. Beyond that. French workers despise the idea of working for experience. In a nation like Sweden, social welfare is there to support people who are gathering job experience. Whereas in France, with its culture of power to the people, the idea of someone working for no pay while simultaneously taking taxpayer money is just outrageous. These rigidities in the labour market also mean that people don't want to move roles. If you have been employed for long enough in a role in France, you are pretty much unfireable. Why would you risk a promotion if it means that you could go without an already decent income? Since there is a lot of animosity around this issue, I put it to you. Leave a comment below what you think is the cause of France's unemployment problem. Now while it's fun to speculate, the big takeaway here is that a lot of these problems are present in all developed countries, perhaps just to a lesser extent. The struggles of France to deal with unemployment in a world of increasing demand for skilled labour and shrinking demand for unskilled labour might be a look into the future of what is to come for a nation like the United States. So now it is time to give the country a score using our tried and tested list of criteria here to see where it sits on the economics explained leaderboard. France's economy is massive. Hovering around the 6th or 7th largest in the world, it gets a 9 out of 10, only falling short of countries like the USA and China, who are still multiple times larger. GDP per capita is a 9 as well. France is a very very developed country and its citizens enjoy a good quality of life, but for a lot of the reasons we explored in this video, it still falls behind a bit. A GDP per capita figure of 42,000 US dollars a year is great by world standards. But it falls behind countries like the United States, and well behind exceptionally wealthy countries like Switzerland, which has double the GDP per capita. Stability and confidence France is a first world country with a good credit rating. Most people would have no qualms about personally investing into the nation, but it still isn't totally without concern. Things like the yellow vest protests and the exposure the country has to global prosperity means that the economy does fall behind other first world nations here, and it gets an 8 out of 10. The growth rate of the country has not been amazing. It has been hampered by the global financial crisis, and then the eurozone crisis, and now the economic fallout of a global health crisis. It was not responsible for any of these, but for the reasons we saw above, it felt the effects meaning it has not grown in real terms for over a decade, it can only get a 0 out of 10. Finally, industry. Well, as we have seen, France is blessed by the ability it has to mark up products almost universally. People pay a premium to buy French made goods, and with the strongest tourist industry in the world, it has to get a 10 out of 10. Altogether, it gets an average score of 7.2 out of 10 putting it securely in first place for now until we add some more countries. France is a beautiful country with a lot going for it. It's very very easy to be critical of the nation based on how it looks on paper, but in reality it is still a very strong, very stable, very prosperous country that provides safety and high standards of living to its very demanding citizens. The country has built up industries that generate a lot of wealth onshore and disperse that wealth to the people of the country that will best use it. But of course, it is foolish to gloss over some very, very real problems that may just be ingrained into the public conscience. We look at France as a global trendsetter for what our winter wardrobe will look like, but perhaps it is time that we look at France as a global trendsetter for what our economies will look like. Hi guys, I hope you enjoyed the latest video, if you did, please consider liking and subscribing. This video was requested by our patrons over on Patreon. If you want to have your say on what country or topic we explore next, please consider supporting the channel like these awesome people did. Thanks guys, bye.
1: The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.